Thank you, guys. All right. I know you guys already have your books open, your Bibles open to Philippians. So, good. A quick disclaimer for this message. Only after you acknowledge that Jesus Christ is indeed the incarnate God himself, that he lived a sinless life, that Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that is able that is able to provide a payment for your sins, and that Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead in bodily form, and repent of your sins, and ask Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, and to be your Savior, then you will be able to receive the benefit of being able to live out the mind of Christ. I would say that knowing the mind of Christ is equivalent, and this is dangerous territory, to a husband or wife understanding the mind of their spouse. Now I know most married couples in here just lost all hope for ever knowing the mind of Christ. But let me explain. I've known Elena for five years. And these past three months of marriage, I've realized just how little I understand what goes on inside of her mind. And I'm sure many of you could say the same about your spouse. The same can be true that we may never truly understand how each of us ticks exactly, but I'm sure after many years of commitment to love and to building your relationship, you learn. And the same is true for knowing the mind of our heavenly groom, Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said, As well might a gnat seek to drink in the ocean as a finite creature like us to comprehend the eternal God. A God whom we could, whom we could understand would be no God. If we could grasp him, he could not be infinite. If we could understand him, he could not be divine. So what are we supposed to do? Where do we as Christians even start to comprehend the mind of Christ? The book of Philippians teaches that the reader who desires to know the mind of Christ must first know the person of Jesus Christ. The mind of Christ is not an incomprehensible mystery. To a born-again believer only, God does not play spiritual hide-and-seek with us. Within the book of Philippians, God displays to us that we can be uniquely at one with him. And if you haven't caught on to it yet, the focus of today, our me- the message today, is knowing the mind of Christ. Um, chapter 2, verse 5 in Philippians, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. But we're going to start at the beginning, chapter 1, and we're going to work our way through. Jesus is the perfecter of our faith. We think, when's the last time you ate? This morning, probably. But when's the last time you've read your Bible and and dug deep and seen what God has to say? How often do we feed our bellies, but how often do we feed our relationship with Jesus? And that's the key to knowing the mind of Christ. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, 
Let us lay aside every weight and every sin that so easily ensnares us and holds us back. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So, Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, is kind of an introduction. We cannot skip verse 6, saying, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let me hear you. Amen. What that verse is saying is that when you're saved, when you are born again, there is no turning back. There is no being unsaved. Now, there is false conversion, um, but that's not what Paul is talking about. He knows that you, the church of Philippi, are believers. You are committed to Jesus and to the relationship. And he says, this is a promise, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until Jesus comes back. It's progressive. It's what we call progressive sanctification. It's a growing relationship like a marriage, like a friendship. Next, we get to verses 12 through 20. Paul talks about these two groups of people he calls brethren in verse 14, and most of the brethren in the Lord. Um, One group is preaching Christ out of love, knowing that Paul is imprisoned for the furtherance of the gospel. By the way, Paul is in prison right now. He's in Rome, and praetorium, as they call it. He's like in the secret service of the Roman Empire. I mean, he's, he's chained to Roman guards constantly. He's serving them. And, man, you got to feel bad for those guards, right? I'm sure Paul is just talking nothing about Jesus, but Jesus to these guys. Um, so that's where he's at. He's in prison. And, and one group preaching the word of Christ out of love, knowing that Christ's chains are because... God put them there, um, while the other group of brethren is preaching Christ for their own selfish gain. And if I were to be honest with you, and if every preacher were to be honest with you, we would tell you that we struggle with that very thing called selfishness. Just ask my wife. She knows I'm selfish. You say, well, Josh, I struggle with selfishness too. And I'm glad you admit that. But none of us are perfect by any means. And that's what hinders us from knowing the mind of Christ, because we're not perfect. And Paul, of course, knows that. In fact, he refers to himself in many of his letters to his churches, to his brothers and sisters, that he is the chief among sinners. That he is the worst of the worst. And we'll get back to that in, in another chapter, and we'll dig deep into just how bad Paul was. But Paul kind of thinks this is humorous, that because he's in prison, in prison, that these preachers who are trying to compete with Paul find some kind of motivation in the fact that he's imprisoned. They think, all right, he's out of the picture, now it's my turn to shine. So Paul's saying, You've you've got it all wrong. God put me in these chains for a reason, for the furtherance of the gospel. Verse 13, and he goes on to say in verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, 
whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I rejoice. Now, these preachers were preaching the gospel. They just had wrong motives. Um, we're warned in uh, the book right before this, Ephesians, that Paul rebukes these men who are preaching a different gospel. He says, may you, they be accursed, anathema, may they go straight to hell. Now, Paul's calling these people brothers. They're preaching the true gospel. They just have wrong motives. And if that's, everything is a heart issue. Which brings us to verse 20, and thir- 20 through 30. Uh, Paul starts to get deep. He's, he's, his spirit is becoming sober. He says, whether by me dying or by me living, it doesn't matter. To me, one way or the other, or the other as long as Christ is exalted, so let it be. And that's it. Paul is telling us not to let ourselves get in the way of Jesus. He says, starting in verse 21, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet, what shall I choose? I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. This longing of wanting to be with Christ or for Christ to return is something I've, I, I haven't really comprehended until just recently when I married Elena. Um, growing up, I always thought, you know, I, don't be offended, but old people, they're like, they're like, they've lived their life. Yeah, they want Jesus to come back. They want to see Jesus. Good for them. But I'm like, I got, I got the rest of my life to live. I'm, I'm still, I'm only 22. You know, I want Jesus to come back, but I still got the rest of my life to live. And, and then I got married. <sighs> and on a serious note, when I was waiting up here, right in front of this church, and I saw Elena come around that corner. She was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And that's what Jesus, that's what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back. He calls us his bride. He is our groom. And he's going to be coming and he's going to be seeing us. And I hope he's crying like me. And it's going to be beautiful. And now that I know that feeling, I cannot wait till Jesus comes back. Which leads us to chapter 2. Verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort in love, if any fellowship in the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each one of you look out not only for his own sake, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm stealing this illustration from a professor Dan and I had at the Word of Life Bible Institute. 
Dr. Ben Gutierrez, who's way smarter than me. That's why I'm using it. What's on this? This is the balloon. Do you guys see what is written on this balloon? What? Just a zero. It's not an O. It's just a zero. Okay. So watch what happens when I blow this up. And I did this before, and the marker just comes off, so I have another one. But I'm going to blow it up. Oh, it worked pretty good. Okay. Okay. Can you see it more clearly now? You see the zero on the balloon. That's what selfish ambition and conceit do to us. You see, if we're honest with ourselves, compared to God, we're a zero. And then our heads start to fill up with our own hot air. We talk ourselves up, especially in this world. You know, self-esteem is a big issue. We talk ourselves up, and our head gets really big. We get really full of ourselves, and it becomes even bigger and more evident to everyone around us that we're just a bigger zero. And this balloon can kind of get in the way of what Christ has planned for you. So let's see what Jesus did, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the only person who would ever be able to consider himself more than a zero. Verse 5, chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name that is is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Let me hear you. Amen? (laughs) Paul says, you want to be great? Well, you've got to get this in your mind. Be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. You've got to humble yourself the way Jesus, the King of Kings, the Creator of the world, humbled Himself. You have got to die to your old ways. And you've got to get out of the way. You've got to deflate your big balloon head. Because Jesus is King. Verse 12, Paul goes on, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So now that you realize that Jesus is everything and I am nothing, I'm a zero, he says, work out your salvation. Does that mean that we can work our way to heaven? Please respond to this. This is, thank you. (laughs) Okay, no, this does not mean that you can work your way to heaven. The, the way that I read it in my head, I read it outwork. Outwork. You say, what in, the, what in the world do you mean outwork? I mean, look at 
look back at chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now that you're saved, people are going to look at you and expect to see Christ. They're not going to see that big zero. They're going to see Christ who is everything. And my brothers and sisters, I need you to stop grumbling and complaining, he says. This is Paul, not me saying this. This is Paul. He's telling us to stop grumbling and complaining. Verse 14, do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God, without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the in, that I may rejoice in Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Whew, that hits home for me. I can't complain about anything, Paul? Paul says, no way, Jose. You can't complain about anything. Nothing. But what if my boss at work gives me a really hard task, an unfair task? He doesn't have anyone else... He has this high, he holds me to a higher standard than anyone else in my workplace. Paul says, no, you can't complain about that. What if my teacher gives me a pop quiz? Or tells me to write a 20 page paper on some ridiculous topic like the hierarchy of political organizations or whether or not they're democratic? Can I complain then? Paul says, no. What if a punk high-profile quarterback decides to sit or take a knee during the national anthem, whom 1.1 million brave men and women throughout the history of the U.S. have died to protect that freedom and values of which that flag and anthem represent. Paul says unapologetically, no, you cannot complain about that. Now, don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean that we should sit on our hands and be walked over like a rug. Stand for truth and stand for justice. Take that person and speak truth in love to them. Tell them what they're doing wrong. Don't complain about it. Do something about it. And a Facebook message about how inconsiderate that person is being is not the way to do it. Don't get sucked into that. We must be as wise as serpent and as gentle as dove, as a dove, the Bible warn, instructs us. Verse 19. Paul gets down to business and he's sending Timothy and Epaphroditus to the church in Philippi to, to disciple and to mentor the, us, the church of Philippi, until Paul himself can come. Remember, he's in prison at the moment. He's not going to be going anywhere. He's not going to be seeing them anytime soon. I mean, all things are possible through Christ, but he's, he's sending Epaphroditus and Timothy. So he's not, he's, he's pressing forward. He's like, okay, I, I'm stuck here. This is, this is the next thing that needs to happen. Timothy, Epaphroditus, go to the church of Philippi. And, of course, one of them is delivering this letter. All right, chapter 3. Paul says in verse 2, Beware of dogs. Beware of evildoers. Beware of the mutilation. Paul is warning the church in Philippi to beware of the Judaizers. Do you remember when we were first introduced to Paul in the Bible? His name wasn't even Paul. His name was Saul. 
And he was a Judaizer. You see, the Judaizers, Judaizers believed the same way the Catholic Church teaches. That is, you have to work your way into heaven by your own self-righteousness. Complete baloney. So Paul gives a bit of his testimony about his past. Verse 3. Chapter 3, verse 3. For we are the circumcision. Worship God in the Spirit. Rejoice in Jesus Christ. And have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. And here he starts. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcise the eighth day of the stock of Israel. He was Jewish. Of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. Whoa. Concerning the law, a Pharisee, strict keeper of the law, of the law and enforcer. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, I was one of them. I was a dog, an evildoer. Steer clear of these people. I'm sure he was holding back the tears as he thought about the young boy, Stephen. Persecuting the church, he said. The story of this young boy, Stephen, he wasn't even old enough to shave his face, probably. Acts chapter 6, we're introduced to Saul, who is Paul. God changed his name for good reasons. Um, This boy, Stephen, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So faithful was he that these dogs heard of his faith. They abducted him and sat him in front of their council where Stephen, this boy, would stand in front of these cowardice men filled with the Holy Spirit. They said his face shone like an angel. So Stephen starts his declaration. They say, so is this true? Are you with these disciples? And he he starts. And it just kind of builds. And you see at first... It's, it's a little agitation. And then it builds. And there's steam going. And then his, his declaration, there's smoke. And then there's fire. He's building. And so then you get to Acts chapter 7, verse 51. Stephen climaxes out by saying, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, just like those fa- their fathers were the it were Israel. They got dragged through the desert for forty years because they were stiff-necked. He says, "Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers." Jesus, you killed the Christ, the Messiah. You have, re- you re- have received the law by direction of angels and have not kept it. It goes on, when they heard of these things, they were cut to the heart and they were gnashing with their teeth at him. But he, being full of the Spirit, gazed up into heaven and saw the glory of God 
And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, and said, Look, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him like a pack of wolves. And they cast him out in the street, and they stoned him. And it says, as they were stoning him, Stephen knelt down as they were throwing these boulders at him. Can you imagine? Stephen cries out, just this boy. He cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he said this, he fell asleep. And it says, as they did this, you know who was watching and approving of all this? He even held their, their cloaks and their tunics as they were throwing these rocks at Stephen. They, it says, they laid their clothes at the feet of Saul. That's Paul. Beware of the mutilation. Paul says. But he goes on. Verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. <sighs> I'm sure Paul, no one understands forgiveness like Paul does. Verse 13. Brethren, I do not count myself, myself as apprehended. What does is, what is Paul not count himself as apprehended? It's our, main, it's our main focus for today. What is it? What, what are we trying to obtain? The mind of Christ. Yeah, say it with me. The mind of Christ. We are trying to apprehend the mind of Christ. Um, chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I don't consider myself to have apprehended the mind of Christ. He goes on, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. God is merciful. If God can forgive a guy like Paul, he can forgive anyone. He can forgive you, right? I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more, God says, Isaiah 43, 25. Amen? Come now, let us settle this matter, God says. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Amen? That was Isaiah one eighteen. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Who is God like, who is a God like you, O God, who pardons sin and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his, of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show us mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Micah 7, 18, and 19. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sin. 
I'm, no, I, it's hard to think of someone who understands forgiveness the way Paul understands forgiveness. And that's the first step to understanding the mind of Christ. You have to be saved. You have to repent. Realize, I need the blood of Christ. Because I can't forget about my past. And with the blood of Christ, we can forget our past and move forward to the goal, to the upward call of God. Chapter 3, verse 15. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in any of you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. See, he says we've already attained part of the mind of Christ. If you understand salvation and what the blood of Jesus Christ has done for you, you're starting to get it. Verse 17, brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have for us a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to him, for one, therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Paul's not done. You see, he makes it clear that it's only by grace of God we get into heaven. But now, because Jesus hasn't come back quite yet, we have some work to do. <sighs> He, so he goes on in verse 4. He implores Judea and Syntyche and Clement and everyone else to rejoice and not to worry and stop worrying so much. He goes on to say, don't be anxious. But instead, he says, don't be anxious. But instead, look up here, play with this fidget spinner. Is that what he said? Don't be anxious for anything. Just look into this fidget spinner. Kind of let everything empty your mind. No, this is this is the world's idea of how to deal with anxiety. It's silly. I have to admit, I kind of think it's fun, but it's silly. This this won't get you anywhere in life. This will not help you reach forward to the end goal, the prize of the upward calling of Christ. That's the, world, that's the world trying to distract you. What does he say? What does Paul have to say about distractions and anxiety? That's, what it, that's, what, that's how, why we get anxious. We have all these things going on. I mean, what don't we have to be anxious for? We have North Korea um, trying to start a nuclear war. We have, the, we have countless unborn babies being killed. We have... The, the rise of the sexual revolution of the LGBTQ RF elemental P, and we have all these things 
that are going on around us, we have so much, God, what do I do? How do I help? What, what, what am I supposed to do? He says, don't look at this fidget spinner and empty your mind as you look at it. That's not biblical to empty your mind. He, he, he says elsewhere in the Bible to meditate and to pray. So to meditate on his word, that is, not emptying your mind meditation, to meditate on his word. He goes on, God, God doesn't want us to do that. He says, the, power, the powers of darkness want you to empty your mind, to distract you, to forget about God. I'm not condemning the fidget spinner, the fidget spinner, but I'm telling you it won't work. What does Paul say we are supposed to do? God knows I cannot do two things at once. Just ask my wife. So he says, pray. I'm not talking an American prayer. Example, Lord, help me not be anxious. Amen. I'm talking a Jesus prayer. Remember, we are supposed to be... uh, we are supposed to be of one mind with Christ. So, I mean, praying, pouring out your heart to God, sweating blood, shedding tears. I say this, but I struggle with the same thing. I struggle with American prayer. Charles Spurgeon says, I cannot remember the last time I prayed for an hour, but neither can I remember the last time I went an hour without praying. Small prayers are good, because I work a job, I'm doing things. If I stop to pray for an hour every time, uh, you know, I want to pick a part at summer racing, I would be fired. So I'm talking constant prayer, um, devoting time to prayer, um, pouring out your heart. I'm talking going into the desert for 40 years, living off, off locusts and water. Praying until your anxieties leave you. Now, I'm not saying you have to go do that, but that kind of mindset. And can anyone tell me what the key to verse 6 is? Look, look down there at verse 6, chapter 4, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I'm, look, I'm thinking of one word. The key to this. Can any, anyone think they, they know? Well, anyone think they know what I'm thinking? Thanksgiving. Thank you, Carl. We have, we're probably the farthest age distance in here. But he understands my mind because he's my brother in Christ, right? I love you, Carl. <laughs> Thanksgiving. We have so much to be thankful for, amen? We are part of the 1% wealthiest in the world which is kind of scary because God says to whom much is given, much shall be required. So think about that. Our problems are, oh, my $1,000 phone is out of battery. What will I do for the next two hours on this million-dollar Boeing 747 that's taking me to Jamaica for my vacation? That's our problems. That was my problem on our way to our honeymoon. I reluctantly must confess. And... And I kind of feel bad for that because there's people who their problem is food and starvation, water. Where's my next meal coming from? We have so much to be thankful for. And the thing about those things is those things are fleeting. 
Those things are not going to last forever. The, the two things I would recommend we have the most to be thankful for is, one, our salvation in Jesus. And you can't get conquer anxiety without being saved. Because if you're not saved, you can't be thankful for having your salvation. And second of all, be thankful that Jesus is coming back. We are his beautiful bride, and he is coming back. Verse 8, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Don't empty your mind by looking at this fidget spinner. He says, meditate on these wonderful things. That brings us to one of the most talked about and perhaps perverted and misused verses of Scripture, one of them. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now before I... It's it's a, I mean, how can I stand up here and tell you what it means or what it doesn't mean? God is infinite. He says, pray that that mountain be moved. You have a grain of faith the size of mustard seed. You can throw that mountain into the sea. I can't tell you what he's going to approve and what he's not going to approve of your prayers. He could do anything. He can do anything he wants except sin. But let me put this into context. Let me put Philippians 4.13 into context. He says, But I rejoice in the Lord, verse 10, greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did, did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever stead I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere, and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Verse 18, indeed, I have all and abound. I am full. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Now, looking back at all these things we have read, let's see, according to the book of Philippians, in the context of the book of Philippians, what that one verse really means. According to chapter 1, the, and I'm getting close to being done, so everyone take a big, deep breath. Okay. According to Philippians, the book of Philippians, Philippians 4.13 means, chapter 1, I know for a fact that he who has begun a good work in me will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Amen? Whether I am imprisoned or whether I walk about freely and abundantly, I will let my conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ who saved me and strengthens me. I can do that through Christ who strengthens me. According to chapter 2, and these are just big run-on sentences that I created, summarizing each chapter. I can know, chapter 2, I can know the mind of Christ 
if I humble myself the way Jesus did, unto death, that is. Serving those whom God has placed over me and holding fast the word of life to this crooked and perverse generation among whom I shine as a light without a single complaint ever leaving my lips. Through Christ who strengthens me. Chapter 3. I can be saved from my past despite my pursuit, my own pursuit of self-righteousness. I may never fully apprehend the mind of my infinite creator. But this I do know, that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed my transgressions from me. And this, through Christ alone, by grace alone, and faith alone, through Christ who strengthens me. And finally, according to chapter 4, the meaning of Philippians 4.13 means my anxious heart can find peace. No matter what state I am in, a base or a bound, through supplication, with thanksgiving, letting my request be made known to God, only because of the cross of Christ who strengthens me. So, According to Philippians, we can know the mind of Christ. And, and with this I close, and we're going to watch a video, and we're going to sing, and then we're going to have all the teens that are here. I know, I know it's fair week, so we're missing a lot of people. All the teens and their parents and the elders and anyone else who wants to lay hands on them. It's just a symbol that 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 God is with you and we're going to lay hands on them and anyone who wants can come forward and we're going to pray for them because they go to schools that are secular that don't teach the truth don't teach us they tell them believe in yourself and you won't have anxiety that's not what the bible teaches so we need to pray for them so i'm going to pray we're going to watch a video so just know that you can have the mind of christ you can you can do that because you can do all things through christ who strengthens you let's pray Thank <laughs> you.